Communications. How does one discuss nuclear issues, especially nuclear weapons issues, without freaking people out and making them want to watch cartoons and eat the refrigerator rather than listen to what you have to say about this crucial problem? When it comes to communicating concerns about nuclear, it's hard to know how to be persuasive about our points without being off-putting until one activist who specializes in digital communications and messaging tells you I think we focus sometimes too much on the problem and not as much on the solution. So people tend to associate things like like threats like nuclear weapons with their inherent dangers, which makes total sense, but they also need to associate the dangers of nuclear weapons with solutions and ways forward. And we really need to go beyond describing the problem and go to explaining why our issue is so important and how certain solutions can improve those outcomes. Well, when you hear something about nuclear communications that makes perfect sense, and you have the opportunity to learn how to be better and more effective in all of our messaging, you get to ease a little of the pain we all experience regarding that deadly, uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we get to talk about the importance of messaging and the use of social media to push back against the nuclear industry. Colleen Moore is, at a relatively young age, both a veteran activist and a digital media expert, and she shares with us some practical tips not only on what we should be doing with our messaging, but why. And a heads up, if you're working on the March 11, 2021, 10th anniversary of Fukushima, she's got more than a little bit to say about that. And we will have a follow-up to our interview of three weeks ago with Susan Hito Shapiro on the Nuclear Climate Change Connection. The intention is to clear up some inadvertent mistakes that were made during that time and touch upon some points Susan made that do not have universal acceptance, along with a way to pursue any conversation with her about those points in the future. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than, for the second week in a row, has yet been certified by the General Services Administration. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 17, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., two more of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 were sentenced for their 2018 nonviolent, peaceful, faith-based break-in 
at the Kings Bay U.S. Naval Submarine Base in Georgia to protest the Trident nuclear weapons. Both received less time than was expected according to sentencing guidelines prepared by the probation department. Carmen Trotta was sentenced to 14 months in prison, and Claire Grady was sentenced to one year and one day. Both defendants were also sentenced to three years supervised probation and ordered to jointly and singly pay restitution of $33,501. Carmen then informed Judge Wood that he did not intend to pay restitution to the Navy because the base is, quote, a genocidal criminal conspiracy. Mark Colville, the last of the seven who has not yet been sentenced, will be sentenced on December 18th. And we will link to the article, Biden and Harris include fantasy of small nuclear reactors in an otherwise progressive climate policy. It's written by that excellent journalist, Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, and appeared in Counterpunch. In Japan, the head of the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, Hiroshi Kajiyama, has ruled out any new nuclear reactors for Japan for 10 years. This sounds like good news until you read down into the article where he says that the government's priority over the next 10 years will be regaining public faith in the nuclear industry. In other words, propagandize, manufacture consent, eliminate or hide the truth about the after effects of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, which will be ongoing forever. And then, hey, more nukes for Japan. As for existing nukes in Japan, the tsunami hit Onagawa reactor in northeast Japan, in Miyagi Prefecture, adjacent to Fukushima Prefecture, has gotten final approval for a restart. As is readily acknowledged in the media, part of the reason for local approval is the money generated by hosting the reactor. With Onagawa having received from the central government around 27 billion yen, which is the same as 256 million U.S. dollars in grants in the past, as well as hefty property taxes from Tohoku Electric. Local residents, however, believe the approval was rushed, saying concerns linger over whether evacuation plans can actually be implemented in the event of a nuclear accident. The towns of Misato, Shikama, and Kami and the restart was approved two years before safety improvements are scheduled to be completed. That's if they stay on schedule, which they usually, considering this is nuclear, do not. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. At the highly radioactive wreckage of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, the triple meltdown from March 11, 2011, a worker accidentally pressed the emergency stop button on the monitoring equipment for continuous fission reaction criticality in the fuel debris. This vitally important warning system was stopped for three hours before anybody noticed, and in that three hours, the pressure doubled. While I am not a scientist, my intuitive nature leads me to believe that this was not a good thing, that perhaps it was pointing to the fission restarting in the reactor at a dangerous situation that didn't have any kind of warning bells and whistles on it, so it could be ignored for three hours. It's not so much that individual worker 
but TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, that not only can't run a nuclear reactor, they can't run recovery from a nuclear reactor in a way that's going to be safe for anybody. And you're planning on going to the 2021 Olympics? Oi! And that's why, TEPCO, you are once again this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In the UK, the leadership of the Church of England is calling on the UK government to stand with 50 other nations in signing an historic international treaty banning nuclear weapons. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York have put their names alongside those of 29 other bishops to a letter published in The Observer saying that the UK's support for the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons would give hope to people seeking a peaceful future. Antonio Gutierrez, the UN General Secretary, said the treaty's ratification was, quote, the culmination of a worldwide movement to draw attention to the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. Also in England, a consortium led by Rolls-Royce has announced plans to build up to 16 mini-nuclear plants in the UK. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is understood to be poised to announce at least £200 million for the project as part of a long-delayed, mislabeled green plan for economic recovery. Using one of my long-standing sarcastic points, this article from the BBC says the aim is to re-engineer nuclear power as a very high-tech Lego set. This is what I've been calling those cute small modular nuclear reactors from the start. But if you think they're harmless, just try stepping on one in the middle of the night in your bare feet. And a Russian freighter carrying radioactive waste ran out of fuel, drifted for three days before being taken on tow... And when it reached port, three out of an all-Russian crew of 11 were found to have COVID-like symptoms. Talk about a cluster. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, it's just about the holidays again, and that means absolutely nothing to the nuclear industry. After all, the radioactivity from nuclear activities is the gift that keeps on giving for millennia. Whether we want it to or not, and believe me, we don't. But still, the nuclear industry continues its Ponzi scheme, sucking up more and more public funds for new nukes while refusing to acknowledge the radiation dangers the industry has created in the entire nuclear fuel cycle, let alone do anything to clean it up. The nukesters pour millions of dollars into their PR propaganda to convince not only you, but our congressional members that nuclear is the cure for everything from climate change to national security to the common cold, when it's technology that harms people and the environment at every step of the way, from uranium to bombs to reactors to waste, even as it makes a small sector of the population obscenely rich. In order to fight against nuclear, we need to know the facts so that we can take meaningful steps to turn this around while there's still the possibility that we can. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We know where to look for the nuclear story, know the questions to ask so we can report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand, and mainstream reporters don't know to ask. That's why the time would be right now pre-holidays, to support us with a donation. 
Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. You can also set up a monthly $5, the same as a cup of coffee and a tip here in the U.S. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. If those of us who oppose nuclear are to make significant process in putting forth our perspective and our goals, we need to be much better informing and sharing our talking points, using modern technology to the fullest. And that's what today's interview is all about. Colleen Moore is Digital Engagement Manager for Beyond the Bomb and Global Zero. She creates content to promote the message of eliminating nuclear weapons. Colleen has experience in campaigning for peace and justice issues, including ending U.S. support for the war in Yemen, promoting human rights and justice in Indonesia and East Timor, fighting for peace between North and South Korea, and advocating for access to education for women in Pakistan. Above all, she has a passion for using digital media to advance causes of human rights and justice. That's exactly what she shares with us today. I spoke with Colleen Moore on November 13, 2020. Colleen Moore, great to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to be talking a lot about social media and how to use it for the movement. But in starting out, you've been working with both Global Zero and Beyond the Bomb. Tell us what those organizations are and how they are related to each other. Global Zero is the international movement to eliminate nuclear weapons. So we were founded about 12 years ago, really backed by all of these validators and global leaders who were on board with the mission of eliminating nuclear weapons. And we also have this concrete Global Zero action plan for a step-by-step plan on how to get to the elimination of nuclear weapons. So right now we're focused really on passing no first use in the United States and then expanding that to a global no first use policy, as well as keeping the guardrails on nuclear disarmament. So like right now, uh, you know, Donald Trump destroyed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and so many other guardrails on nuclear disarmament and New START, which is really the last arms control treaty left between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, That's really what we're trying to save right now and then expand upon it further. And Beyond the Bomb was founded a few years ago and it really came out of the Global Zero movement. So Global Zero saw that there was this need in this space for for an organization that was focused specifically on grassroots and intersectional efforts in the U.S. So Beyond the Bomb is focused in the U.S. passing no first use legislation. So it's uh, Elizabeth Warren and Representative Adam Smith's No First Use Act. So we're aiming to pass that in Congress and really doing it through intersectional partnerships and communication efforts and working with a lot of young people in the field. So Global Zero just really saw, especially after the election of Donald Trump and leading up to it, that there was this real need for that space in the field. So that's kind of how they're related, and that's what the two groups do. And how are those groups related to the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN? 
So neither group actively does work on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We do have this separate, like Global Zero especially, has this separate plan to achieve the elimination of nuclear weapons, but we do work closely and we, of course, commend the Nuclear Ban Treaty for entering into force this coming January. And so we really do enjoy like working together and seeing how their campaigners and our field organizers on the ground in the U.S. and our global leaders really stand behind the goal of eliminating nuclear weapons. One of the things that has been most impressive, at least to me, about these new groups is exactly how ticked out they are. And they aren't necessarily new groups, but they're new to me. It's part of my expanding awareness into the nuclear weapons arena. But you're really teched out in a good way in getting your messaging across using social media and other digital resources. And you are one of those people who have come to the fore as a real expert in using them. What is your background on these platforms and where and what have you studied about them? I really identify as a campaigner, somebody who has worked in advocacy for a few years. And like I originally, you know, I got my master's degree in international relations. I was thinking of perhaps pursuing a career in policy. And I really discovered social media and other digital communications platforms as something that I really just enjoyed. And I just honestly picked it up on the way while I was getting my degree. So I don't have any actual like formal training in communications, digital communications. And I realized that that's something I really enjoy and something that I think might even be more effective and something that's really needed in so many different issue areas are people that not only know the issues, but know how to communicate about the issues. So I really taught myself how to use social media, how to communicate using email marketing, designing websites, graphic design. So that's really like kind of skills I picked up along the way. And I realized that I think that that's something that this field and other fields also really need. So I've kind of dedicated myself as a campaigner to really knowing as much as I can to communicate about these issues because they're so important. I think that they're crucial because this is the way we're going to communicate, not just our message in general, but specifically to get it across to members of your generation and those who are younger, because so many of us have, you know, passed the gray hair test. And it's time that we build our skills up so that we can bridge the gap and get it to the younger generation. And I have to admit that most of the long-established groups are filled with members who did not grow up with digital media and the assumptions that go along with it. I know I'm pretty tricked out when it comes to Facebook. I'm ish when it comes to Twitter. And as for the rest, I don't know the difference between them. Without mentioning any specific groups, what are some of the areas of digital weakness or digital I don't want to say ignorance as a bad word, but we just don't know about how to use it. What have you seen within the groups? I think generally in the field, and this may not be like platform specific, I think one thing that overall our field can do better at is getting past the problem. And this is just talking about messaging on nuclear weapons, not any specific platform, but even just in communications overall, when we're talking to each other, when we're communicating on social media, you know, when we're sending emails, I think we focus sometimes too much on the problem and not as much on the solution. So people tend to associate things like, 
like threats like nuclear weapons with their inherent dangers, which makes total sense. But they also need to associate the dangers of nuclear weapons with solutions and ways forward. And we really need to go beyond describing the problem and go to explaining why our issue is so important and how certain solutions can improve those outcomes. And people most likely already know, at least to some degree, the dangers of nuclear weapons. They don't really know all of the policy issues and they don't want to and they really don't need to. We need to just reestablish that problem and then move on to the more important parts, which are articulating clear solutions. And I, I've seen that people will definitely shut down if they continue to hear about the negative side of things. So it's not only how to use these platforms, it's thinking about how are we using them and what is the goal of communicating. And kind of once we get past that, getting past the problem, talking about concrete solutions, having these concrete campaign plans where we're breaking down our goals and seeing how we're communicating about it, I think that using social media and other digital tools becomes a lot more effective. One of the things I noticed when I first got involved in these issues, which was only after Fukushima, even though I had been at Three Mile Island when it happened, I just went into post-traumatic stress and I ignored everything for all those years. But post-Fukushima, what I noticed as I was trying to ramp up my learning is that those of us who have been involved in this movement for a while have got the information. We are lousy with information. The problem is we don't know how to deliver it which is one of the reasons why as I'm going through materials, I'm always looking for equivalencies. It's like, it's not how nuclear waste is in the fuel pool. It is what is the equivalency in Olympic sized swimming pools? Or what is the equivalency in terms of how much radiation is in that canister in the equivalency of Chernobyl? And finding ways to get that information out. Is there any training that you have gotten or training that you had given and how to whittle our message down so that a newbie can wrap their head around the problem without getting overwhelmed and backing away from it. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely give trainings on messaging and using social media. And one of the things that I really hone in on is proximity and intersectionality. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, like breaking down these issues. So it's something that's real for them. It's something that is a current issue, something that's personally meaningful to them. And it helps people who, like I said, if they already have this base knowledge, and most people do, that nuclear weapons are dangerous, it helps them to start a conversation. And then it also attracts those who don't yet believe that it is dangerous uh, through topics that matter to them most. So we do attach those like national security threats to issues they already care about, then it becomes relatable. And I think also it, it does help to cut through all of the crazy things that are happening in the news cycle. When it is something that they already care about, they'll seek out that information and they'll discover how nuclear weapons are related to that. And I think it also puts the focus of the solution on human-centered solutions. It's about the people at the center of these issues. And I think one good example is like making the nuclear weapons budget real, for example. I mean, we're spending trillions of dollars on nuclear weapons and that's just such a large amount like none of us can actually imagine what that amount is like i don't even know what a trillion dollars looks like but when you break that down by describing trade-offs 
like all sides of the political spectrum actually respond to that kind of message when it attaches that to something they really care about. So especially when I'm talking to like a member of Congress, we'll kind of power map them and see what do they care about if we're trying to talk to them about defunding the Pentagon or whatnot. If it, they say on their website, like they really care about veterans. Imagine the healthcare that we could fund for veterans if we cut the Pentagon budget. So it's about meeting them where they're at, seeing what kind of issues resonate with them, and then breaking it down into simple terms so it really starts a meaningful conversation with them. Using as an example a theoretical young person, which basically in this movement means anybody under 60 at this point, but say somebody who is under 30, perhaps even college age, what are the kinds of issues or framing that they respond to or that they might respond to? I think especially what Beyond the Bomb focuses on, and we have a fellowship program where we Every semester we bring in like 10 to 20 fellows who are like young professionals or in college and we really focus on young activists who care about perhaps like other social justice issues besides like national security or nuclear weapons. And I find that young people really care about like climate change, about healthcare, really just about meeting basic needs. And I mean, you know, Gen Z and even my generation, like we've been at war my entire life. We spend so much money on war and military, and yet we claim that we don't have enough money for healthcare for all, for something like a Green New Deal, for actually addressing climate change. And so I, I find that young people really appreciate that intersectional lens, and that's what really brings people into the movement, is relating to all of the struggles that they're going through right now, especially when they're in college and dealing with massive student loans. I know like I'm one of those people that's dealing with massive student loans and probably will be for the rest of my life. And yet we're spending this crazy amount of money on weapons that are dangerous and that we don't even need and just make us more unsafe. So it's really meeting them where they're at. And it's really those issues that messaging has proven time and time again, that they truly do care about like Gen Z and millennials as well. Sidebar on student loans. I just paid off mine. Now, well. that, was, that was from a master's degree, but it was 21 years ago that I incurred the debt. So I can only have empathy for what the younger generation, what people like you are going through to try and get your head above that financial water. Now, shifting this slightly. You say that you train, and I will be wanting to get information how people can contact you about social media training, because I think that is a crucial part. I've gone through speaker training, I've gone through media training, and I still need much more to get my head above this digital water. But I'd like to ask you now for a brief tutorial, if you would, what exactly is a hashtag? All of you people who understand this, please don't laugh. Just bear with me on this. What is a hashtag and why should we be using them and where should we be using them? Yeah, absolutely. So hashtags are, you know, a word or a phrase that you'll use on mostly Twitter and Instagram. And it's really a way for a certain word or phrase as well as like the rest of that post, the rest of that tweet, rest of that Instagram post to get in front of an audience that it might not otherwise. So for example, 
we like on Beyond the Bomb, we use the hashtag future first a lot when talking about the actions that we are driving towards for no first use and other policies. And that is used by a few other groups and people really like some people, like some groups will like monitor certain hashtags. And so it really starts a movement of, I don't, I don't want to use the word movement, but like, I guess movement of people towards like looking at that word, looking at that phrase. And if enough people use it, it will be trending. So when you go to your Twitter homepage, when you go to certain Instagram pages, you'll see that. And so people are more apt to see your content like on their homepage, but I will say it, it is really hard sometimes to get a hashtag or anything like that trending. But even if you don't get it to the point where it's trending, using it for a certain project or a certain action where a lot of groups are participating in a certain action. Like I know we partner a lot with the Women's March and Indivisible and ACLU and a lot of other progressive groups. And like recently we've been using the hashtag count every vote and the hashtag protect the results. So all of these other groups that are using this hashtag when they're kind of search, and I do this almost every day, I search the hashtags that I use on a regular basis and I'll go through and like, like and retweet and share on Twitter and Instagram, other groups who are using that hashtag because I want to uplift their message and other groups will do the same as well. They'll go through the hashtags that they're using, they'll amplify the voices of those who are using that hashtag. So it's really a way to gather everything that's happening on a certain topic and make it so it's more powerful and make it like almost like one voice, like many voices together advocating for a certain issue. Is it better to have a distinct hashtag that changes depending on what the issue is? Or is it better to have one like, for example, Me Too? is so well known mm -hmm. now. Some generic specific, if that isn't too much of a contradiction, but something where people will go, okay, that's ACLU. Okay, that is beyond the bomb. Mm -hmm. Or is it better for us to have something specific because of this issue that came up today? I think it depends. I know that's not a great answer, but I think it depends on what kind of campaign and what kind of goals you're trying to get to. So I think for using specific hashtags, so something like what Beyond the Bomb uses of hashtag future first or hashtag no first use. When other groups, especially those in the like, nuclear advocacy community, will use something like hashtag no first use and someone will click on that, most likely they'll also be brought to our Twitter or Instagram account because we use it so often. But I also think some of those more generic hashtags, if it is more of like a broad, issue like something like me too is a great example that like if it's already in use and you find it useful to your campaign and it's something that people are already monitoring it's something that people are using on a consistent basis and you have a reason and a way to use that hashtag absolutely jump on that like i think that's a great example with like the count every vote hashtag or the protect the results hashtag you know it was used by these like you know 10 to 20 groups but also like i as an individual tweeting when i was using like hashtag count every vote then some of these other groups were seeing my tweets as well and amplifying them so it's really like what are you looking to get out of this and what is the type of campaign so it sounds like it's 
if I can make an analogy, the hashtag is like a dot and we play the game of connect the dots depending on what the interest is. So this is about building networks of shared interest in a topic. Would that be a fair way to look at it? Yeah, absolutely. And is there any crossover at all between a hashtag on Facebook being read on Twitter and Instagram, or can I drop all of those hash marks from my Facebook posts? Yeah, so Facebook hashtags aren't as useful just because like when you, it's not as useful for when you're searching, whereas Twitter is really useful for that searching. Instagram is a little bit different. I think people should absolutely use hashtags because you can also follow certain hashtags on Instagram as well. So I follow on Instagram like hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag No First Youth and you can just see all of the content and like the top content as well that are like really popular posts using hashtag Black Lives Matter or whatnot. So I think that Instagram is absolutely useful for hashtags. Facebook, not as much. Well, I'm signing up for that course the next time you give it. That's basic. Awesome. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, which began on March 11 of 2011 and will not end in any foreseeable future. We know the nuclear industry is going to be throwing millions upon millions of PR dollars on their talking points, prepared material, trained speakers, anything on this anniversary to convince everybody that there's no problem, you can eat the food, you can drink the water, and you should come to the Olympics. What are some of the things we need to be not only thinking about, but actually doing now to prepare ourselves digitally for this anniversary so that we can at minimum maintain where we have been, if not move our message to the fore? Yeah, so I will admit that Fukushima isn't one of my areas of expertise, but just speaking from like a communication standpoint, I think that it's really having some kind of concrete campaign laid out beforehand. It's really, what is the goal that you're trying to obtain by talking about the anniversary of Fukushima? And what is like the short-term goal of it? What's the midterm goal of it? What's the long-term goal? And how are you going to accomplish each of those goals? Is there a certain solution that different groups have? Is it a unified goal and a unified solution that each of these groups have, um, or are there like multiple going on in this community? And so I, I think it's a lot of conversations probably, and they're probably already happening amongst these groups of what they're advocating for, but even setting like concrete benchmarks of like, do we want to reach a certain number of people? And you can also do like beyond like typical social media, like posting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can also do like paid ads depending on budget and that tends to reach an audience that like you can pick out a certain target audience that you would prefer to reach if you have a certain budget to do that. So it's really sitting down and saying like, what is the opposition saying? What are we saying? And how are we going to reach that goal? And especially with digital platforms, it's who what audience do each of these groups have? Because I know a lot of like, each of these groups will definitely have a different audience. Some may skew older, some may skew younger, some may skew, uh, you know, more like older white male. And it's going and in, diving into what are these different audiences and how do we differentiate our messages between these different audiences? And then how are we also unifying that strategy as a whole?
Great, let's get started. If you could give established activists one piece of advice as how to increase their social media presence with their message and for their message, what would that be? One of my favorite parts about Twitter and Instagram is all of the people I've actually met through these platforms. And this is what I always tell the Beyond the Bomb fellows is really use these social media platforms almost as like networking tools. Like sometimes I really hate that word networking, but uh, I think it does really work for engaging with each other and seeing what is interesting from like these different communities. Cause I know even like sometimes the people that work on like nuclear energy and nuclear waste may be different from like nuclear weapons, like anti-nuclear weapons community and anti-climate change community. And so it's really about engaging with each other amplifying each other's voices authentically. And that's how you really start to build your social media following is really like you can use what's called Twitter list on Twitter. So you can put together different lists where you add different accounts and you can monitor those lists. So I, I know for Beyond the Bomb, I have uh, multiple Twitter lists, but like one for our smaller community, we have something called our the United Against Nuclear War Coalition. And so I have those six or seven groups and like individuals from those groups in this Twitter list. And I have some that's like the large anti-nuclear weapons community. And then some like I have a climate change list. I have like an ending endless war Twitter list. And so it's really about monitoring those lists seeing what kind of information and things are being amplified and then like authentically engaging with them. And I think using the direct message function on Twitter and on Instagram and really engaging with each other authentically, that's really how like, I've built social media for Beyond the Bomb in my own uh, and Global Zero and my own personal social media accounts as well, is really just meeting these people. And then that, that opens up so many opportunities when different people in different communities are retweeting and liking and engaging with you, then that opens your content up to their whole audience as well. So if there is a group that has a really large Twitter following, like say they do have something like 20,000 Twitter followers, when they retweet the tweet that you're putting out, that means you could be reaching some of those 20,000 people. So that's about starting those authentic relationships and building from there. It sounds like we should all be retweeting and commenting and signing up and following and all the rest of that on Twitter. I must admit, I do not know anything about Instagram, but I think I'm about <laughs> to learn. Now, when and how and where do you train people in doing this? Because you seem to have a great conceptual grasp of what it is we need to do and how it is it can be accomplished. So please, in lieu of being able to open up your brain and pour it directly into ours, how can we engage to learn more? Absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely offer any kind of training, any kind of presentation to anyone who's interested, especially if it is the 10th anniversary of Fukushima, if there's a group of people that are really interested I can definitely give, I, I have like a certain training that I, I give on communicating and messaging and social media. I've mostly given it to Beyond the Bomb fellows. Is I give a social media training every semester as well as like so many other trainings like on how to write a blog post and how to write an op-ed and how to like write an email to send to your district to talk about no first use. So there's a variety of trainings I kind of have in my arsenal and I'm definitely happy to give it to any kind of group that are 
interested in learning more about social media and how to improve upon their campaigns using digital platforms. How do we contact you? If you want to go to either Beyond the Bomb or Global Zero's website, that's beyondthebomb.org or globalzero.org. I'm not sure if my email is on either one of those, but you can also email me at Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N at beyondthebomb.org. Or you can also follow me on Twitter and that's Simu11 underscore on Twitter. So there's probably a variety of ways to contact me. I'm happy to, to talk to anybody about how to do this. Anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this time? Yeah, I think just kind of closing out, I think I really got into this space kind of coming from like a wonky, like like I said in the beginning, like policy wonky. I really wanted to be like this policy expert. And I really want to communicate to like everybody listening that you can use so many different skills that you have to kind of break into this field. Or even if you just want to do something on the side and really just want to even do like small things to help us achieve the goal of eliminating nuclear weapons. Like there's so many things that I think this field could use so many different skills, whether you do want to use social media, whether you're a musician, whether you're an artist, whether you're an engineer, whether you're in the medical field, like there's so many different skills that I think this field really needs. And that's what I'm really hoping to communicate people who communicate to people who are really looking to get involved more. I think you are a breath of fresh air. I think you represent the kind of energy and knowledge and really gut level excitement about doing this work that we need to infuse throughout this movement, not only for those of us who are over 60 by a good deal, who've got gray hair, but those younger as well, because the issues that we're talking about are global. And there's not a single person on this planet who is not impacted by it. Mm -hmm. So knowing that you are there and hearing what it is that you have to offer, I'm very excited about what the future can hold for all of us. And for now, Colleen Moore, thank you so very much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks so much for having me. That was Colleen Moore. Digital Engagement Manager for Global Zero and Beyond the Bomb. To find out when her next trainings are scheduled or to book one for your group, you can email her at colleen at beyondthebomb.org. Now here's our second interview today. Three weeks ago, on Nuclear Hot Seat number 488, October 27, 2020, Attorney Susan Hito Shapiro shared information on the nuclear climate change connection. She realized after the show posted that in a few instances, she misspoke. The pressure of an interview can do that. Beyond that, however, some of what she shared has provoked a bit of pushback from within our community. She is also aware that some of her information is not universally accepted. Discussion is always good. Clarity is best. And for that reason, I invited Susan back, both to clarify the points that got burbled in delivery and also to address some points she made that are not universally accepted. And she very generously offers a way for those who do not agree with her position to contact her directly and continue the conversation. I spoke with Susan Hito Shapiro 
on Sunday, November 15, 2020. Susan Hito Shapiro, good to have you back on Nuclear Hot Seat to clear up some misconceptions. All right. I think I misspoke about a couple of things I want to clarify. So first of all, the tritium is not, I think I said oxygen, three atoms of oxygen. It's actually three atoms of hydrogen. It's a hydrogen hybrid or ionization, but it easily becomes tritiated water. And that tritiated water can be turned into steam. And that's the steam that we see being released. So how it's released from nuclear plants is through pipes by leaks and accidents, which are go unreported, and by steam. So it's tritium and tritium, and it's a beta particle, and it can be ingested through drinking water or inhaling it, gas that has it in, steam, oxygen with tritium in it. So the point that you're actually clarifying is? Is that the steam coming out of nuclear plants is tritiated water. It's not just clean water. All the steam and all the leaks coming out of nuclear, water that goes into a nuclear plant comes out tritiated. That's the point. Tritium is such a small atom, it goes through piping. It is one of the smallest atoms and it can get through everything. So they can't control where tritium goes and they also can't remove tritium from water. Unlike strontium, which they say they can screen out most of the strontium, even though there's some residual left, or cesium, Tritium, they don't have any technology to remove tritium from water. And so all the water in the atmosphere today has tritium in it from the bomb testing from the 60s and 70s. That's just our background radiation. So we're all affected by the existing tritium that's already out there. Nuclear plants with their steam are putting out more tritium. They're increasing the tritium load. The other thing I want to clarify was I misspoke when I said the troposphere was the highest level of the atmosphere. It's actually the lowest level of the atmosphere, but it's where all weather conditions occur. And it's where the electromagnetic weather conditions get disrupted. And so Krypton 85 getting caught in the troposphere has a great impact on the electromagnetic activity of weather and the weather conditions. Krypton 85 being released from reprocessing in France and other countries is already in our troposphere and we can see the result of these massive increases in strange and extreme weather and in extreme for example what was going on in california the lightning strikes that started a lot of the fires and so that kind of electromagnetic disturbance will continue to increase as we continue to release and reprocess nuclear waste You had a point that you wanted to clear up about the Russians burying their radioactive waste in the Arctic. One of the things that happened in my early research when I first got involved with the issue was I started researching the fallout from Chernobyl. And what I found was that there was a ton of cesium from Chernobyl that ended up in the Arctic ice. And then I started thinking, well, cesium's hot. Did it impact the increased rapid melting of the ice? in the Arctic, if there's all this cesium that was never there before, why hasn't anyone been talking about that? So I continued researching this over many years. And now just last year and this year, there was a study from Princeton and there's news articles that have recently come out that the Russian, the old Soviet Union actually, was burying its nuclear waste and its nuclear bombs and its nuclear submarines under the Arctic ice, under the Arctic sea. What heat impact did that have on the increased melting of the Arctic ice? You're putting all this hot material right there under the Arctic. Could that not have an impact is my question. And is that thermally hot as in degrees of temperature? It's hot nuclear waste. 
it's a spent fuel there they put in i believe it was eleven thousand tons of waste just straight up nuclear waste and then they buried some reactors there old reactors and they buried submarines there i shouldn't say buried they sunk them one other thing that just came out this week is in the very deep pacific they found microorganisms in the deep pacific which they thought was pristine they believe that was the last pristine place on the planet they found in those microorganisms carbon 14 from the radioactive bomb testing because these deep places in the ocean is where the pollutants ultimately sink to so like in the arctic you have a heat sink and in the pacific you're going to have the carbon 14 from the radioactive activities of nuclear now, you made reference to calculations that had been developed by Marvin Reznikoff. Again, explain what Marvin's credentials are and what these calculations point to. Marvin's credentials is he's a nuclear physicist who has been an expert witness at many hearings. He's been involved in the nuclear issue for many, many years. And Marvin was very interested in my idea that there was this heat from nuclear that hasn't been considered and how much heat was nuclear actually creating? Not just the moment that you make the electricity, but out over time, because as I explained, once you start the radioactive fission process, it continues and continues and continues producing heat and radioactive isotopes. So we did, it's a broad study. What we did was we looked at, there are 400 nuclear plants worldwide roughly operating for 40 years. They roughly average are about a thousand megawatts each. So we did calculations based on that and the amount of BTUs that these plants put out. We based it on, a, it's a BTU calculation and it's over time. What we didn't add in was the high burn up fuel, which is hotter. We didn't adjust for that. And we didn't add in the heat from the ongoing waste after 40 years. We just looked at the 40 year period. So we're now past 40 years. We're, you know, 50 years at some places, but we, that was the calculation we used. And you said that you had overstated in the program, the amount of the earth's ice that had been impacted by this. What is the correction that needs to be made there? I want to be clear that it's not that we're saying there's a direct correlation to melting of the Earth's ice. We can't make that correlation because we don't have those studies. But what we can say is it takes X amount of BTUs to melt the Earth's ice. Nuclear has produced X amount of BTUs. What percentage is that? So the percentage of the BTUs that nuclear has produced versus the melting of the Earth's ice is about 25%. It's about 25% of the Earth's ice could be melted from the BTUs of nuclear. Admittedly, both in our pre-conversation to the interview and also in some of the feedback I've gotten, many of the things that you're saying are not accepted in all corners of the movement, that there is pushback. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not the one to adjudicate this. But you said that you would be very open to having discussion with these people and going further in it so there could be a mutual learning and a mutual sharing of information. If people wanted to contact you and follow up on this, how could they do so? They could reach me at my office, 845-371-2100. So I'd love to talk to more people about it and open this dialogue.
I would welcome hearing any results from that dialogue. Susan, thank you so much for coming back with us and providing what I hope is clarification and that people who are intrigued or bothered or hooked by this information will take the opportunity to follow up with you in a civil way and hopefully increase our overall understanding. Thank you very much. I appreciate everything you do. That was attorney Susan Hito Shapiro. And she meant it. Listen to the original program, Nuclear Hot Seat 488, from three weeks ago, October 27, 2020. And if you wish to follow up to engage in civil conversation with her on the points she made, you can call her at 845-371-2100. And yes, we will list that phone number on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 491. Activists, activists, Since 1998, the Nuclear Free Future Award has honored people worldwide committed to a future free of nuclear power and nuclear weapons. An international jury of activists and scientists selected the winners of the 2020 awards in three categories, each of which comes with a $5,000 award. The winners are in the area of resistance, Fedor Maryasov and Andrei Televlin in Russia. In education, Felice and Jack Cohen-Jopa in the United States. They're the publishers of The Nuclear Resistor. And in solutions, Ray Atchison of Canada and Ireland and was the subject of Nuclear Hot Seat number 489 for her work on the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons. Congratulations to all the winners, and there will be an online event on the 25th of November to celebrate. We will have a link to that up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 491. More awards. The International Uranium Film Festival in Berlin has announced that its first place winner is Leah Camillo, director of Belentis, The Brave Ones. The film The Soviet Garden by Dregos Turia received honorable mention in Berlin. Both of these films are available on YouTube, and of course, we will link to them. And a really terrific, well-done podcast that I've just discovered called At the Brink. It is hosted by Lisa Perry and features her grandfather, Dr. William J. Perry, who is the 19th U.S. Secretary of Defense. Given the high-level contacts of the participants, the show features personal stories of presidents, cabinet members, congressmen, nuclear physicists, atom bomb survivors, military officials, and activists. There are nine episodes available. They're going for funding for a second season, but for now, check it out again. The link will be on Nuclear Hot Seat, and if you want to look it up on your podcast platforms, it's at the brink. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 17, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, eesi.org, International Uranium Film Festival, atthebrink.org, Kings Bay Plowshares, cnbc.com, Asahi Shimbun, japantimes.co.jp, listener Fred Lehman, fairwinds.org, TEPCO, 
bbc.org, fleetmon.com, yahoo.com, bloomberg.com, and the ever-co-opted, regulatory-captured Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Coming up on the 500th episode of Nuclear Hot Seat in January, and in our look back, if there is a moment a story, just something that sticks out for you about the show that you would like to have remembered, send me an email, would you please? Info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Let me know what episode, if you can, approximately where in the show it came up. And I'm putting together a montage of favorite moments and most ridiculous moments from the show. I mean, hey, 500 episodes. Who'd have thunk it? If you want to get Nuclear Hot Seat every week and not miss a single episode, go to the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and scroll to the yellow opt-in box. Put in your first name. Put in a fake name if you want to, but put in a real email address, and we will send you one email a week with a link to the episode and a brief outline of some of the stuff that's in the show. It's the easiest way for you to get it, or... If you're a podcastaholic, just go to your favorite podcasting platform and you can subscribe to it there. We are all over the place. We are even not only number one in business news in Bolivia, we are number five in Mongolia and number 12 in Indonesia. So whoever is listening in Mongolia and Indonesia, please do a shout out, get in touch. Let the show know what's going on in your area because I don't have any correspondence on the ground in those countries. So give a shout out. Let me know. We'll cover whatever stories we can discover. Now, Nuclear Hot Seat is a participatory kind of a program. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We'll check into it. See if we can find some new people to talk about and discover some stories we haven't known about yet. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, like all the others, is copyright 2020, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. Hey, we want this getting out. All you have to do is promise to give full attribution and a link to the website. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that nuclear industry lies that minimize nuclear radiation impact might make some people feel safe. But words don't change scientific facts, no matter how much propaganda backs them, and the stuff is dangerous forever. There you go. That qualifies as your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.